I'm sure we all agree that tensions with co-workers are neither desired nor productive. And fortunately, some issues have a way of taking care of themselves. However, there are other disagreements or conflicts that tend to take on a life of their own, if not dealt with more directly. In healthcare, providers who are negatively distracted by each other can jeopardize patient safety and quality of care, which is, of course, not a good thing. It's the opposite of what's supposed to be happening on a high-performing healthcare team. But what are the most productive ways for team members to surface underlying problems with one another when emotions can so quickly get in the way? We're going to learn about some effective and meaningful approaches to maintaining team cohesion by leaning in, not avoiding the messy world of human dynamics, even on healthcare teams. Imagine that on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience. You can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So could it be more timely to be talking about managing conflicts on healthcare teams when teamwork and collaboration are becoming the new normal throughout healthcare? I don't think so. And I suspect that's why you're here, too. We've had a tremendous response uh, of interest to this program, and if you know anyone who couldn't make it, we do hope you'll um, refer them to the archived edition of the program. A reminder, if you do like to use Twitter, we welcome your tweets during or after today's program. Thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets. That way we can bring some others from the improvement community who follow IHI on Twitter into our conversation. Let me now briefly introduce our guests and a reminder that longer bios are on the WIHI web pages and on uh, slides we provide during the show that you can later download. Also, you may have noticed that uh, because there are many of you who are interested in today's program and getting on board still, uh, we do have, you can see your the chat arrow um, on the screen and also a polling one. Uh, John's just put that slide. We'd like to ask you some questions. Um, our panel today helped us uh, come up with these questions, and there's a poll. You can see it at the arrow, and we'd love it if you'd take part. We'll, it'll be open for probably about another uh, 10 minutes or so, um, and then we'll look at the results before we go to our discussion section of the show. So let me start with introductions. Neil Baker, he helps leaders and teams who need to move far and fast on results, but feel constrained by organizational and people issues. He has 30 years of experience in leadership, behavioral science, and quality improvement. Over the last nine years, Neil Baker has served as faculty and an improvement advisor for IHI. So welcome, Neil. Hello. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here with all of you. All right. Terrific. Welcome. Nan Cochran is an associate professor of medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. She's also a practicing physician and the current president of the American Academy on Communication in Healthcare, which I did not know existed before this program, but there's a wealth of resources and we'll uh, make sure you know how to uh, follow up there as well. Welcome, Nan. Thanks, 
Madge. Great to be here. Excited to share this material. Wonderful. And Calvin Chu is Professor of Clinical Medicine at UCSF and Staff Physician at the VA Medical Center in San Francisco. He's a faculty member of the American Academy on Communication in Healthcare and is recognized nationally for his efforts in education and research to enhance communication between patients and physicians. So welcome, all of you. Now, we did... Thanks for having me. Yeah, fabulous. I'm so glad you're here as well. This trio uh, is used to one another. They gave a kind of standing room only uh, presentation of some of this material, which we're going to get a kind of slimmed down version or think of it as a crash course. And I'm very, very grateful for them for figuring out how to take maybe what was a four and five hour workshop uh, and and boil it down. I think you're going to come away with some really good nuggets and ideas to uh, ponder and act upon and try out. And also a reminder, uh, the poll is still open and uh, we'll be open for another several minutes and we'll look at those results in just a little bit. All right, so I'm going to start off with Calvin and um, let's start with some context. So uh, with at the risk of sounding a little, um, I don't know what, a song phrase that kept popping to mind when it comes to healthcare environment today is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And I, what reason I was thinking about it is it made me wonder if old ways of resolving things that just are there old ways of resolving things that just don't work anymore because, in fact, it's increasingly up to us, team members, as opposed to someone with authority who's going to come in and, you know, shape everybody up to steer the work and remove the barriers that may get in the way. So, Calvin, kick this off for us. Thanks. Uh, that's a great observation, Madge. It's a little bit of a paradigm shift that we'll get into in a moment. Uh, but first of all, I'd like to start with a story about White House chefs in an orange. Uh, some of you may know the story. Uh, Jill and Jack are the head and assistant pastry chefs at the White House. So one evening they're preparing for a high-stakes formal dinner for heads of state, and they realize they both need an orange for their pièce de résistance, and there's only one left, and there's no time to get another. So there's several ways to resolve this conflict, and you might recognize one of these as your usual approach. So Jill could say, Jack, I'm the head chef, and I need to make my dessert work, and she takes the orange, and Jack's dessert fails, but neither of them is satisfied. Jack could say, well, Jill, you're the head chef. You get the orange. Or he might try a workaround with a couple of lemons instead. But either way, Jack's dessert still fails, and neither is happy with the result. One of them might say, well, let's cut the orange in half. But it turns out that both recipes need one whole orange, and both desserts fail, and they're not happy with that either. So what if Jack says to Jill, I think we both want our, our, our dessert to succeed, both for the party and for our working relationship. I wonder what you need the orange for. And Jill says, I'm, I agree with you completely. I don't want to get into an argument over a single orange. Um, my recipe requires the juice of one whole orange. And Jack says, well, I need the zest of one whole orange. And Jill says, well, go for the zest and give it to me so I can juice it. And what happens is that both desserts earn fabulous compliments from the world leaders, and because they're inspired by Jill and Jack's conflict resolution skills, we have world peace. <laughs> so, you know, obviously this is a made-up kind of a Pollyanna-ish story, but it illustrates several principles of conflict management that Neil and Nan will speak about more in a bit. Um, just a brief um, forecast of that, watching one's assumptions 
investing in the relationship and focusing on interests rather than positions. All of these principles are absolutely applicable to conflicts in healthcare, not just in these theoretical political networking opportunities. Um, but before we get there, uh, let me set the stage a bit, and let me start by defining conflict first, maybe. Um, you see Calvin and Susie yelling at each other here. Um, a disagreement, incompatibility, difference of opinion, either real or apparent, between more than one person's needs or interests. And it turns out that conflicts around tasks, that is to say, choosing what dessert we're going to prepare, or conflicts around process, who gets the orange, say, um, can quickly devolve into relational conflicts. Um, if we went with one of the prior scenarios, Jack um, hatching a plan to get back at Jill for making his dessert fail, or both of them gang up on the person who is supposed to ensure there are enough oranges to be in with. Um, in the survey questions down at the, on the polling section of the, of the website, um, you can see the approximate breakdown um, of some experiences that are related to each of these types of conflict. They're not exactly in the order of, of the three task process and relational, but they incorporate a couple of those. So we'll uh, see what the results are in a little bit. So it turns out that there's some startling statistics that suggest that conflict in healthcare is not only prevalent, but it also leads to poor quality healthcare. Some studies suggest that healthcare workers are engaged in conflict for about half of their work life. Imagine that half. Wow. And very few of very few of us get any training in it. Um, in addition to that, about three of every four healthcare workers in the ICU setting remember a significant conflict in the last week, and more than 80% of them characterize the conflict as harmful, either to a relationship in the ICU or directly to patient care. And there are similar statistics in operating room settings. If we take the totality of, of the data on conflict in healthcare settings, conflict and disruptive behavior are associated with poor ratings of well-being and increased job strain that leads to dissatisfaction and turnover. But probably most importantly, it's associated with poor patient satisfaction, preventable adverse outcomes, and increased costs of care. In fact, the Joint Commission estimates that about two-thirds of Sentinel events are due to breakdowns in communication that often can result from poorly managed conflict. And in an era now where teams are increasing in size, this means that there are more opportunities for conflict, and so we all need heightened need to recognize and manage this effectively. So finally, go um, ahead, yeah. I'd like to emphasize... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, please go uh, ahead. Finally, I just uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> finally, I just want to, um, if you can advance it to the next slide, I think I just want to emphasize that creativity often results from engaging in conflict. So if we frame conflict as a means to get our own way or as an always stressful part of our work, it'll get in the way of productivity and trust. But let's think about conflict differently. If we don't particularly care about something, it's not worth getting into a conflict. In fact, Churchill said, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." <laughs> We get into conflicts because we're passionate about something. 
by really deeply understanding the passions that we share and the differences underlying the conflicts that we choose to enter, we can broaden our perspectives. We can discover new ways of doing things, new clarity, new passions, specifically because we lean into the conflict with open minds and reframe the conflict as a learning opportunity rather than always just getting our own way or just capitulating to others. And that's the gift of conflict. And Neil and Nan are going to follow shortly with some tools that uh, allow us to receive that gift. All right. Thank you so much, Calvin. Some great uh, ideas uh, to, to kick this off. And um, I um, I know we have a few resources that we've collected from all of you, and perhaps some of this is at the AACH website, but um, some of the uh, references you made to um, uh, what we know, evidence of what we know about um, reported conflict and sort of how people feel in the ICU or operating room, perhaps we can gather up some of that research as well. Some folks may like to um, share that with others too. So thanks, Calvin. All right, Neil Baker, we're coming back to you now. So I think it's safe to assume that healthcare is made up of well-intended, highly committed professionals. Uh, Calvin just talked about how passionate folks are about patient care, which uh, in part may be uh, the way in which uh, some of this comes about. But why are tensions as prevalent as they seem to be? What's going on? Perhaps at, at the micro level or perhaps just because health professionals are human beings after all. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Madge. Yeah, I think you've nailed the main lesson. Uh, in fact, all of us, the White House chefs, everyone on this call, all of us presenters, all human beings are actually hardwired to leap to assumptions and create tension, especially in the stress and complexity common to healthcare. Now, this can seem unsettling for all of us. After all, all of us on this call work hard to be quite rational and professional. But actually staying aware of our hardwired irrational tendencies is a powerful key to transforming tensions. Now, this hardwiring derives from the reptilian brain, ancient parts of the brain which evolved early on for automatic flight or fight survival responses. In modern social situations, perceived difficulties activate these ancient pathways, which drive us very quickly to strong emotions and leaps to faulty assumptions and judgments. Modern flight and fight may be manifested as withdrawal into silence or blaming or pushing views and debates about who's right or wrong without genuine mutual listening. These pathways work very fast. Estimates are that the conscious brain can process 40 bits of information a second, whereas the parts of a brain of our brain out of our awareness process at 11 million bits per second. So this guarantees we will all at times have blind spots. Now, none of us can stop ourselves from making assumptions. That is automatic. But through awareness, we set the foundation for transformation. A key step is to set aside time just to talk together about our assumptions and what led to them without the push to come to resolution. A tool that aids checking out assumptions is the ladder of inference developed by Chris Argerus and Donald Schoen. The ladder helps visualize the rapid movements of the mind. At the lowest rung is the pool of observable data and experience from which our minds then select data and then jump up the ladder to assumptions and ultimately action. In the example on the slide, I've been working with a colleague, Chris, for two years. From a large amount of data I have about him, I select one piece, 
Yet again, he comes late to a meeting and does not apologize. Immediately, I assume he is not committed to the team, and that can lead to further conclusions and actions, such as we need to get rid of him. Checking out assumptions involves a balance of active listening and telling with repeated checking of understanding. At the heart is asking questions about our experience, thinking, and reasoning. Questions like, could you repeat back what you heard me say? Did you get my reasoning? Here is what I heard you say. Did I get that right? What are you basing that on? Though simple in concept, sharing our experience in this way is very demanding, especially when others are, we, we or others are gripped in emotion, high stakes, or a need to be right. Then it is hard to own our contribution to tension. Also, questions can then be used to try to disprove someone's reasoning. Instead, the purpose is genuine curiosity, to elicit and view differing experiences together to get to the most objective thinking. This requires a good deal of self-regulation of emotion and thought, which takes a lot of practice. The good news comes from research reported by Gervais Bush in his book, Clear Leadership, which suggests that 80% of conflict at work is resolvable just by sharing experience and checking assumptions. So what seem like intractable differences very often shift into something much more manageable when we can do this. We learn to recognize and check out assumptions in the moment by practicing in everyday conversations when things are less intense. This practice is lifelong. I've been doing this for 30 years and I still make mistakes. The mistakes help me uh, remind me of several things. First, that my strongest convictions are just theories to be tested. Second, that everyone can act at their worst at times, and that includes me. And third, forgiveness of ourselves and each other and apologies can be transformative on their own. What we can count on is that practice makes it much more likely that we will be at our best just when we need it the most. Pass back to you, Matt. All right. Thank you, Neil. Very, very uh, interesting. And I like the notions about uh, practicing. And it's almost like developing new habits, um, uh, since I think we're all used to sometimes. Uh, we have a wonderful person here who helps, who uh, we collaborate with at IHI, Ellen Goodman, who often talks about being in kind of a crouch position, which can be uh, somewhat fearful, uh, but it's, it's the opposite of maybe sometimes checking things out further. So appreciate those ideas. All right, both Calvin and you have now, you keep, you are both alluding to, and now we're going to get into a little bit more, the solutions um, aspect of things, and that's with Nan Cochran, and I know uh, you, uh, Calvin and Neil, will also chime in a bit. So let's uh, talk about solutions and good techniques to transform uh, what can become real barriers and a lot of energy being drained out of people. Um, it seems as if we're wired to react. Uh, perhaps we're also wired to clear the air and get back to joy and meaning and work from everything you're saying. So Nan Cochran, welcome, and uh, we'll listen up now to some of your thoughts. Thanks. Great. Thanks a lot, Madge. So I think we all know very well that our jobs require us to collaborate better on multidisciplinary teams, on our hospital committees, in our teaching, our research, 
and uh, improving our conflict engagement skills is going to help us meet those expectations. And I want to start off by saying we all have the ability to learn to manage conflict well, no matter where we started. Most of us start as avoiders or terrified of conflict. That's where I began. Or people who accommodate to others just to smooth things over. And I think we all also know that if we can engage effectively in conflict management, we can turn our workplaces into a much more joyful and effective place, as well as one that can provide better care to our patients. So I'd like to to say, first off, that I think we should define a good working relationship as one that can handle differences well. And also to recognize that conflict is so common, as Calvin told us, that we should see conflict management as our work. And I want to discuss just a few. We're going to just limit to two or three today. Incredibly useful conflict management principles and strategies that I know I use every single day. The first one is an important negotiation principle, which they call, negotiators call, separate the person from the problem. And what that means is that we want to be hard on the problem, but we want to be soft on the people that we're dealing with as we address the problem. Another way of saying this is that we want to try and be unconditionally constructive in working with others. It's tempting to fight back. It's tempting to get nasty when people are nasty, but we want to avoid that and try to be unconditionally constructive. So I'd like you to imagine yourself always, when you're faced with a conflict, sitting on the same side of the table next to your colleague, and both of you are tackling the problem together as colleagues rather than attacking each other personally. So how does that work? First of all, we need to spend more time listening. And we want to really listen with presence. We want to use not just our ears, but we want to use our eyes, and we want to use our heart. Because in addition to the words our colleagues are stating, we want to identify the feelings that they're experiencing. So you've got to pay attention to their tone, their pace, and all their nonverbal messages. Remembering that it's the nonverbals that convey most of the meaning. It's really tempting to try and ignore a colleague's feelings, especially when they're negative feelings or you're being attacked. But I have very rarely seen that approach succeed in any significant conflict. So if we look at the slide about reflective listening, it looks easy, but it can be deceptively difficult because what you need to do is make the other person the center of attention without interrupting them and without attempting to influence their perception or view of reality. And remember that just because you understand their viewpoint does not necessarily mean you agree with it because you probably don't fully. But the first goal is to understand it and then to reflect it back to your colleague, reflect back the meaning, rephrasing what you've heard. And while you're listening, try very hard to use good nonverbal behaviors that convey attention. You're going to use good eye contact. You're going to lean forward. You're not going to cross your arms. You definitely don't want to roll your eyes, and you want to avoid any judgmental expressions on your face. And you really want to avoid jumping in with your perception and your viewpoint or going on the counterattack. Now, all of this, I appreciate, can be hard to do, particularly, as I said, when a colleague is expressing strong emotions. And so when that happens, we suggest you try using what we at ACH call the pearls. These are relationship skills that in the heat of conflict will really help you build the relationship with the other person 
and reduce their resistance to change. So let's talk about a couple of those examples. So using a statement of partnership and explicitly stating, I want to work collaboratively with you. I know we're both mired in conflict right now, but I really want to work together on this goal, just like we saw in the the White House chef example. Um, Likewise, if you've hurt somebody or offended them, it's really worth clarifying your intention, which was hopefully not to hurt or offend them, and separate your intention from the impact of your statement. It's also great to acknowledge your contribution to the problem. Uh, Much as we like to blame others, the truth is that we all do contribute something to the problem, and acknowledging that up front makes it easier for the other person to respond in kind. Um, At times, an apology is in order, as Neil mentioned, and this can really reduce the emotional temperature in the room. And then the last skill I want to mention is empathizing with another's distress. Anything you can do, and empathy is the best way to do this, that will help them feel understood will prevent their emotional reaction to the conflict from escalating. One thing that's a challenge in medicine is we've all been trained to diagnose and fix, and I describe this as an occupational hazard because we're tempted to just jump over the emotions and try and go straight to the fix. But understanding, listening for and understanding the emotions that underlie the conflict are really essential before we can get to the fix. Um, great stuff, Nan. And we're going to now move on and have you talk a little bit about interests, uh, separating that from positions. I think what we'll do is, uh, as I suggested to our audience today, I've asked three people who um, put on an amazing workshop um, at uh, IHI's uh, summit in March to kind of boil a lot down. And I think uh, what we may do, Nan, is hold off on talking about sort of the preparation piece. Uh, only only hold off on it until we can maybe get into some of the Q&A, and then we'll come back to it. Uh, we also have those slides as well. So let's go through interest versus positions, and then uh, we may uh, sort of uh, migrate over to chat. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds perfect. Thank you. Okay. A, a second really critical skill in negotiation is the ability to do what's called separating interests from positions. So in a conflict, as you can see in the slide, most people tend to lead with their position. And this often presents as a demand or even a line that they draw on the sand. On the other side, you can see the interests, and the interests are what motivate us to take a position. An interest may be a hope, a fear, a concern. And it's important to realize that all of the other party's interests are not known to us and may not be articulated at the outset. So you very gently need to probe to uncover their interests. And you will almost always find that there are going to be multiple compatible interests, interests that you share so you can build on a solid foundation there. And, of course, they're likely to be conflicting interests as well. So you're going to really ask, you know, tell me a little more about how you arrived at that position. What is most important to you here? As you can see in the simple example on the slide, there's a nurse insistent she can't help out that day by working late. And if we look beyond that and explore interest, it makes perfect sense. She no longer looks lazy or like she's being difficult. It's that she needs to be there for her daughter. Likewise, in Calvin's story, Each chef started out by stating and demanding they needed the entire orange. 
But once they took the time, which didn't take long at all, to explore the interest, they saw that, in fact, they needed different parts of the orange, and the conflict resolves. And uh, it's important to realize there are many different kinds of interests. Some are tangible, like the orange. Some are intangible. Some of them are shared, and some will be competing. So your goal is to identify and then prioritize together the interests of each side. You're going to emphasize the shared ones, and then once you have a sense of which are the most important, you may do some trading and you may do some brainstorming about how to satisfy as many of these as possible. And this process can be very creative, and it can be a lot of fun. Thanks, Nan. One thing that's really struck me as I've gone through some of your material, even preparing for the show, is sometimes um, we can discover that our interests may be far more shared than our positions may suggest. And sometimes positions uh, can polarize more. And if we can just um, kind of peel back a little bit, we can find out that we have more shared interests. So this is great from Calvin, Neal, and Nan, set up stuff. And I want you to all to know in the link that we do keep um, you know, reminding you of in the chat, there are even more slides in here, and I hope we can. I'm going to hope we can circle back to a little bit of the stuff about preparation. Um, there's some nice constructive things there that basically the message is don't wing it, meaning it's important to prepare for these kinds of conversations and almost go through in your own mind or maybe work with somebody if you're going to be bringing up difficult things. Uh, there's a way to kind of map that out a little bit and be prepared. So uh, let's put hold on that for one second, and um, let's take a look, John, at the results of our poll. So, um, and uh, let's see what, um, I guess everyone can see the results. And by the way, if anyone has joined the program today, just on the phone, a reminder that you can get all the slides by emailing info at IHI.org, and all the results of the poll and other resources will be posted to the website tomorrow. So, uh uh, when conflicts arise, it looks like the winner is both. <laughs> I, I, my tendency is to withdraw or fight back, although withdraw, definitely uh, a little more uh, More people said, oh, yeah, quite a few more people said my tendency is to withdraw rather than to fight back, although many people sort of see both. Maybe it depends. Of the following, uh, the the most difficult thing that I think is to encounter, I have to remind myself now of what the language was. Wait a minute. Find the slide there. Bear with me here. Whoops, can't find the, uh, the one. The most difficult, the most common source of conflict I encounter on a healthcare team and the answers that were personality differences, struggles over decision-making authority, difference over roles and or tasks, and power struggles between disciplines. That's kind of even, although personality differences jumps out there. And then the third one is of the following. The conflicts that I find most difficult to manage are due to, and we had the same four things to choose from. Aha! Are we surprised that personality differences are the most common source of conflict and the most difficult to manage. Uh, thank you all for taking part in, in the poll. Um, our guests there, Calvin, Neil, and or Nan, does anybody want to say anything um, uh, about uh, this poll? And I wonder how it compares to any other findings uh, when you've surveyed folks or, or found out what's going on in groups. 
Uh, this is Calvin. I'll just take it first, and then maybe Neil and Nan, uh, if you want to do a little bit a little bit later. Um, I mentioned in my opening piece that um, the process and task conflicts often can devolve into relational conflicts, and I think that's what we're seeing in these last, uh, certainly in the last of the three questions here. That that the ones that we find the most difficult to work on are the personality differences because they start out. Oftentimes, they start out as one of these other kinds of conflicts and then they devolve. Um, and then a lot of the uh, tools that Nan has mentioned in terms of using the pearls and specifically reflective listening can get through some of this, clear the air a little bit. And um, I've found them, I think, um, I, I found them, Nan said that she uses these every day, and as do I. It's not that, you know, we're, we're, on, this, we're on this webinar talking about conflict, but we also live conflict. And using those tools allows us to um, really make certain that we're leaning into it by using uh, these tools as opposed to just uh, just withdrawing, which is what some folks um, have a propensity to do. Thanks, Calvin. Neil, uh, Nan, any quick thoughts? And then we'll go to discussion. Any quick comments? Yeah, I just wanted to, this Neil, make a comment about how the ancient brain pathways work. There is a very common error that is almost automatic and pervasive across all of us where we attribute problems that other people are causing to personality as opposed to situational factors, whereas for ourselves, we attribute problems we're having more to situational factors. So it's interesting that personality comes out on top, and so it's a cautionary note is, to um, maybe that that could be not always, but it could be an action of those ancient pathways, which means to step back, reflect, and try to get into those people's shoes. Uh, one of the things that uh, there's a quote from Crucial Conversations I like, which is to ask ourselves, why would a perfectly reasonable, well-intentioned person act this way? Mm-hmm. Good question. That's great. I appreciate that, Nan. Uh, just one quick comment, which is that I think we all recognize that conflicts can occur in multiple domains with patients, families, administrators, and on our teams. And I think what really is most challenging for the vast majority of people is conflicts with their peers. This is the kind of thing that keeps me awake at night when I haven't settled a conflict, and I suggest it's one reason so many of you have joined the program today. Okay, great. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, so, oh, Matt, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I, Not at just, all. There's a comment from Chris Seal uh, that role and leader issues can also uh, lead to what look like personality conflicts and conflicts on teams. So uh, I'm not sure I understand the question entirely, but uh, I do want to say that's an important factor. When there's lack of alignment of leadership, sometimes that's manifested as conflict between people. Right, exactly. No, that's really helpful. And I think there's so many layers. (laughs) We could devote uh, several hours ourselves and series of questions about kind of overall things going on in a culture, in an organization, who sets the tone uh, that either leads to greater um, ways to more skills to resolve differences or etc. So, so many things operating in addition to the brain and I do love the way uh, you, you describe that. I love thinking that I've got in part an ancient brain uh, which connects me <laughs> to <laughs> all kinds of things. Alright, it looks like folks are starting to tee up questions and comments and observations of their own which is great. John, uh, just maybe a quick reminder uh, of the chat and uh, don't forget folks 
folks, when you log off the program today, you can download this and have your own uh, transcript. John. Yep. Just make sure that when you're addressing uh, questions and comments that you uh, send to all participants in the chat box. All right. Very, very good. Um, so let me – I'm trying to get a sense of some of the things that people are asking about. Um, good phrases. Uh, I, as I mentioned that the um, the website, the organization, uh, the American Academy on Healthcare Communication probably can help a lot with a lot of terminology, um, any sorts of phrases that folks uh, may be less familiar with. So just wanted to uh, address this. So uh, come on. With your question, somebody clearly likes why would a responsible, rational, decent person do that, say that, act like that. So people have clearly appreciated that. So I'm going to jump in with a, a clear question. I hope that's okay, and then you all can overtake me here. So I'm thinking that um, one of the difficulties uh, in in uh, having to do with the resolution of issues is sometimes whose responsibility it is in an organization. So when we're talking teams, does it mean that a team needs to set some good ground rules uh, for kind of behavior, uh, dealing with different create space. Um, we're, we're sort of talking about a lot of this as though it's a kind of one-on-one thing. And I'm wondering, how does the group uh, kind of help uh, the even things that may come up between, which seem to be between two people? Any thoughts on that? Oh, whoever feels like jumping in. This is Matt, Nan. Maybe I'll Whoops. Go ahead. <laughs> all right, Nan, then Calvin. Okay, so just a couple brief thoughts. First of all, I think it's a terrific um, idea to set ground rules on any team that you're on, and I would encourage you to have among those ground rules that conflict can be freely aired, that we obviously want to communicate in a respectful way with each other, but that it, it will not be suppressed because I think that will get in the way of you know effective patient care. The other thing is I think assuming good intent on the part of others saves a lot of time. So if ever something happens that doesn't make sense and you assume good intent, then you're likely to check in and see, you know, what the story I'm telling myself is this. Help me understand why, why, why that happened. And uh, that will open things up in a way that I think makes it easier okay. to avoid conflict. Thanks. Calvin? Uh, one of the reasons that I used uh, Jack and Jill in the White House chefs and the assistant chef is the one who initiates the conflict management there was that it is the responsibility of all of us on a team, regardless of our station and regardless of our level of hierarchy, to take it upon ourselves to lean into these conflicts. We're not just depending on the leader to make the conflicts right. We all have responsibility, and that goes for whether it's a one-on-one hierarchical relationship in a peer-to-peer relationship or among a wider team. It can be very intoxicating, I think, to be in a team and watch a conflict develop between two people and say, "Well, I don't have any part. I don't have any part of that." Like, let me let me just leave. Particularly those of you who said you may you want to withdraw from from conflict, and that's probably even more important a time for us all to be able to recognize what part we're we're taking in that conflict or what piece of the conflict we are allowing to happen. I actually I that version of that conflict is 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 alive to me, and that 
dis- in a way distributes the conflict so that it's not just between two people who then start hating each other. It is a shared experience among all members of the team, uh, and then we can bring all of our diverse perspectives to work through it. Some of the conflict, some of the comments have also talked about. Um, I think they're very very astute talking about what you're feeling first and what you're thinking before what you're saying. Those are those are really really important uh, items, not to just speak off the top of your head, but checking in with yourself, having that self awareness about about um, what am I feeling and what are what are my needs really and and why am I feeling this way and uh, then getting curious about what the other person is. Sometimes it's hard to be fully present to somebody else if you can't be present to yourself. Thanks. Neil, I maybe I'll, uh, thanks Calvin. Neil, maybe I'll turn this one to you. Somebody has written in it said, and said, time is so limited. I feel pressure to address conflict immediately, uh, taking a short amount of time to prepare, prepare, but I can feel my nervousness and fear, and I worry that if I'm not sufficiently, um, you know, that I'm not sufficiently out of my primitive brain. And I think that's an, <laughs> an or ancient brain. And I, I can appreciate that. One of my questions that I I had in my back pocket was, do we all need to sometimes take time uh, to step back a little bit, reflect, sleep on it? Uh, or do we fear because of the nature of the work we're in? Uh, and there may be some high stakes things going on where some things need to be resolved right away. There are all these patients around after all. Um, uh, Neil, some thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, if you're asking those questions, you're already somewhat out of the primitive brain. So that's a good thing. And the other thing is the answers come, there may not be easy answers at the time. As you're talking about, situations are complex. We do have time pressures. I think that uh, what's important is to take some time to try something but reflect on what happened, and that helps us learn more about the clues of when we are in our primitive brain or when we are uh, reacting to a situation. For example, for me, you know, a very strong one is if I really feel convinced I have the right answer, I'm very careful because I can put it out there in a way that suppresses all team comments. So I I think that it's a matter of practice over time. Another principle to use when you're not sure what to do in a situation is to use the principle of PDSA cycles. The idea of small tests of change is you pick something that is, if you can, that's of lower risk where you have more confidence and that you can be successful. And for example, one thing that can usually help and that has lower risk and is easier for me to do is to just ask people questions about their point of view. I set aside mine for the time being. And that uh, can really help in shifting our understanding of a situation. So those are just some pointers, but I think it underscores the fact this is a practice over time of getting to know ourselves, getting to know others, trying things in different situations. And the good news is I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there and that simple things can often get you a long way. Thanks, uh, Neil. And I'm going to have Calvin address this issue of geographically distributed teams, uh, kind of across the transom and virtually and remote in just a second. But Nan, let me throw this one at you if it's okay. Um, I thought this was interesting. Could you identify strategies when a member of the team sees themselves as the leader and says the buck stops here and ends the discussion? I guess we've all been there. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, we sure have. I think it's important to realize that there's some kinds of conflicts and feedback that is are better done one-on-one and not in the group. So if you find that a leader is shutting things down, I think there is a real risk in trying to further the discussion there and give feedback to the leader there because of the potential for humiliating that person, which would then escalate the conflict. So that's a situation where I would speak with that leader in a private setting, one-on-one, after I was prepared to do so. And that means really maintaining my equilibrium, really understanding um, where they likely were coming from, what pressures they're under, what their interests are. As uh, you mentioned, Madge, we've put together a conflict prep document, which is really useful to work through before you have any of these difficult conversations. But that's one I would not do in a group setting. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Um, fascinating uh, questions and comments. We'll, we're trying to get to them as fast as we can. But, Calvin, go for the one about uh, geographically distributed and remote, and there's sort of a related one, which is you're a part of many teams, um, and that may be because your role is to kind of migrate. Somebody is saying as a patient navigator dealing with a lot of different teams of providers. It may depend on what hour of the day or what day of the week. My heart goes out to that person. <laughs> it's a it's a lot of potential t- uh, conflict, and I imagine that you know you probably see conflict more than fifty percent of the time, more than more than what's in the literature. Um, so, in this more dispersed um, uh, environment that we're all starting to lead, where we're uh, parts of teams that are uh, remote or on you know on teams that are are. are um, uh, on the phone, for example, I think the first part of it is this preparation piece that Nan is talking about. Number one is to um, check in with yourself, know what what your reactions are, know what the conflict is, and then figure out whether now is the time to to resolve this conflict or whether we need to resolve this conflict at a separate time. Um, so uh, really deciding whether or not, uh, whether the group, remote group, or even in-person pre- in, in group can handle this conflict right now or whether we need to, a little bit of time to cool off and then deal with it either um, either individually, if, there's a, if there seems to be an issue with one person or a subgroup of people, or within the group if it ter- turns, a, turns out to be a group problem. Um, ideally, bringing conflict resolution into the group as a whole um, is probably overall the gold standard. If you take uh, uh, if you resolve a conflict out of the group and you come back and everybody is is okay, then people who weren't part of that resolution may wonder, well, what happened? And then there may be a little bit of mistrust that, ingen- that that's engendered in the group. At the same time, I think the 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 conflict um, uh, managers also need to make certain that it's safe for the for the group to be able to handle such a conflict. If it's a personality conflict. For example, um, it may not. It may be really awkward to call out somebody um, on, on the basis of a behavior or a personality that they may be exhibiting in the group. So it is a little bit of a um, case by case basis, 
but the principles are making certain to prepare both yourself as well as the group for these, uh, for how to resolve these conflicts. And then, um, in addition to that, determine the correct strategy, whether it is taking it outside and then recapping it for the group or, or using the group for the, for the management. Okay, thanks. Um, and uh, did we deal, I'm sorry, I, I was reading a little bit and I, my mind might have wandered. Did we deal with the kind of remoteness issue of people who are on teams but don't necessarily see each other? <laughs> Calvin? Um, the, yeah, yeah, I think, um, the, the, I, I think that's, that's part of this whole uh, question here is that sometimes if you try calling people out, ah. Great. In the middle of a in the middle of a call, <laughs> yeah, it's harder to do, and sometimes you right. might, might want to have a individual you know, like conversation with that person. But if the if the team uh, if the team the, if the remote team gets together occasionally, sort of person to person, and then disperses, then you have the cohesion that might be able to hold uh, airing the conflict in in real time. All right, thank you so very much. I, That's I my really bad for on the cohesion of the team. Yeah, yeah. my bad. I, I, I people think I'm fabulous at multitasking here, but I confess I was trying to read through a lot of the comments uh, the chat and listen, so thanks, Calvin. Um, now, there's... A <laughs> This was bound to come up, and uh, I think it's, you know, when we talk about team members, um, they're not nameless, faceless people. Everyone has backgrounds. There are age differences. Uh, there are perhaps training differences, regional differences. Several people have uh, jumped on um, in the sense of, I agree, I agree, um, concerns that there is a younger, to be overly simplistic here or generalized, there is a younger generation that seems to behave more entitled, <laughs> which may be a source of, of conflict on teams. So I'm, I'm being very daring and, and bringing it up here and uh, wondering if anyone might want to just talk about those kinds of issues. That, that may be – one reaction I have to that is that are we also engaging in some ladder of inference in, as well there perhaps – just to be a little provocative. Who wants to try that one? Nobody. Nobody, apparently. <laughs> uh, imagine, uh, what yeah. I could say is is that yeah. uh, one, one principle is to go back to basic principles, yep. like you were doing. Yeah. And before we try to resolve things, we first say, where are we on the ladder of inference? What's driving this? Yeah. Um, the whole the word entitlement. What is our experience? Uh, for example, we we could have a whole hour discussion about what are the specific behaviors we are observing, and that lead us to that conclusion. Uh, then another principle that came to mind is interest versus positions. Entitlement. Uh, one meaning I take out of that is somebody expects something. That sounds to me like a position, and. So if we're stuck in positions, it is not only going to be frustrating, but as Nan said, it's going to hurt the relationships over time. So how do we get back to the underlying interests that may be common between us, which takes conversation? So those are just a few ideas. So obviously something difficult and very important is going on here, and it must be understood. 
Yeah, I, I really feel, I think the chat today is very, very rich, and I think you all, all uh, I might invite everyone, if I dare here, to look it over and see where, if you were applying some of the tools and ideas uh, that our guests today are putting forth, you might restate even some of the questions and statements uh, that are being made. Uh, it's just, it would be interesting to just kind of run it through um, those ideas um, and, and that filter. And um, I also, I, I'm going to, maybe I'll ask you this, Nan. Was, there are people who are suggesting that maybe one does come to a point where perhaps somebody is suggesting something has been going on for four years and it continues to not be resolved. I guess there are moments when some things may require a, a bigger kind of change. I think what you're trying to do is show that there are uh, maybe a whole host of ways of resolving things that we haven't even begun to tap. But I imagine there is a point at which uh, there may be times when something is just incompatible. Nan? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a complex subject, and we don't have time to spend a, a lot of time on it. I think it's important to realize that there are certain things that we can't fix. There are fixed resources, for example, um, but I think that exploring the interests underlying the positions, as I just did in a phone call before when we got on this week today, um, can be a useful way to move forward. And just because something has been going in the same direction for four years doesn't mean you can't turn it around once you try some new skills. I have to say that until I learned these skills, I had some very problematic relationships that had gone on for decades, and then they turned around once I applied some different skills. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't give up. Okay, very, very good. Thank you. All right, quick uh, comment here from uh, John Gothier, just to remind us some stuff coming up, and then we'll we'll start to wrap up. But don't go away, because we'll have some good parting words. Uh, John. Yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, are you looking for a deeper dive into transforming primary care after today? <laughs> if you're listening to the program, you probably already know about how effective healthcare teams can transform patient care. This June in San Francisco, IHI is offering Transforming the Primary Care Practice, which is a three-day intensive program that guides participants to towards exceptional primary care by focusing on care team optimization and coordination, coordination, HIT, improving efficiencies in flow, and laying a foundation for ongoing improvement. For more information on this great training, visit IHI.org or shoot us an email at info at IHI.org, and we hope you'll take this opportunity to push your primary care practice to the next level with us. All right. Thanks, John. All right. Why don't we throw up these slides, Negotiating Differences, Arts of Communication, uh, John, that we have here from our team. And we'll have that as sort of a backdrop as we maybe just try and sort of come. Uh, I'm going to see if there are you. Many of you are having uh, a whole discussion with one another, which is great. Um, but let me see if we can get some kind of parting words. And I'm just going to go around the horn here. And I'll start with a Calvin, uh, as we start to wrap up. Calvin, go ahead. Um, I think that uh, what, as I'm reading through the chat and uh, understanding that there's that differences are emerging between uh, generations, for example, or there are other kinds of um, uh, differences that arise, uh, male versus female, or um, uh, doctors versus other allied health, um, that a lot of these differences uh, come from uh, perceiving the other as other and um, uh, and really trying to reach through those differences 
um, by <laughs> what this slide is, is suggesting almost is to ask open-ended questions with curiosity about what the other person's experience is and then and then being able to tell what your perspective is only after responding to them um, in, in my mind um, uh, you know I deal with a lot of medical students and when I first started dealing with them dealing with them I thought oh my god they're so entitled and as I've gotten to know that generation over time um, that they have a lot of the same basic human needs that we all do. Some people mentioned nonviolent communication uh, earlier in the chat, and I think a lot of these basic human needs are, are something that tie us all together. So if we can get to those things that tie us together, those interests that tie us all together, then we can reach through some of the, uh, some of the differences and actually learn from them. So that would, be my, that would be my final thought. Thank you so much. Uh, it's just been great to uh, have you as part of this discussion today. All right, uh, Nan, some uh, kind of parting <laughs> words. <laughs> Let's work on that optimism for all of us here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would just uh, take what Calvin said a step further and say, you know, there really are core emotional interests, and they relate to things like autonomy. We all desire autonomy in our life. We all want to feel we belong. We all want to be treated with respect. We all, you know, want our role and status to be well regarded. And we all want to be treated fairly. So, uh, you know, with all the conversation on the chat, which has been (laughs) wonderful to watch, about different generations, different perceptions, again, remember, if you come in with that mindset, that's what you're going to be looking for for when you're listening and therefore that's what you're going to hear and you may miss things that contradict that so check your assumptions you know don't make them and climb that ladder too fast try and walk your way back down again before you fabricate a whole story that may not in fact be true okay and the words we choose make a huge difference mm-hmm. if you want to adopt three useful words they are help me understand I've never seen those words go wrong, so I encourage you to try them. Help me understand. Okay. Maybe we can chat those in, uh, Vicki or Marie here. Uh, help me understand, just as a, a good good, uh, good thing for folks to maybe uh, walk away with. Neil, some final thoughts from you, and I want to thank uh, you and the whole team here uh, for kind of giving us a reprise of, of, of a longer session. And I hope we can uh, come back to this with all of you. Thanks, Neil. Yes, my main message is try this tomorrow. No, better yet, try it this afternoon. <laughs> you know, a, I, this is a true story of a physician leader of a major quality improvement initiative who came to a workshop just an hour long, much like now, and he realized he'd been stuck in lack of progress over six months, and he'd been part of that. He'd been blaming a particular surgeon who'd been pushing his point of view in a rigid way. He went to the next meeting, acknowledged his contribution to the situation, apologized for getting argumentative himself, and expressed his wish to go back to the mutual goals and take time to listen to different viewpoints. The committee immediately joined in, the surgeon participated fully, and I just talked to him two years later and it's still going strong and he and the surgeon are friendly and collegial the message is what seems insurmountable may not be try something and I know I don't know how frequent such sudden and dramatic changes can occur but usually um, but the, usually it takes more time but 
there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. That's the main message. All right. I want to uh, thank um, Neil Baker, Calvin Chu, and Nan Cochran, uh, all the preparation. And thank you all. Uh, there were over a 1,000 of you, uh, maybe, and a few others who were on the line with you or looking at the same uh, computer screen, uh, engaging in a very, very vibrant uh, discussion, a very crucial one and an important one. Uh, this is the future, in a sense. It's the present and the future, and we're both pulling on our ancient brain and trying to pull it forward. So um, I very much appreciated being able to host this discussion today, and thank you all for the energy you brought to it. Next up on WIHI on May 8th, we're going to be talking uh, with uh, folks from the Lucian Leap Institute about a new report on uh, that looks at sort of the next phase of work for partner, partnering excuse me, with patients around uh, safety. So I hope you'll tune into that. Uh, all the resources that relate to today's show will be on the website tomorrow and uh, when you log off the show today you can download the slides you can download the chat um, and you can also we hope take a brief survey and let us know uh, what we did well and what we can do better how this program worked out for you and also uh, Jane Rossner tunes in just across the glass here in this uh, studio and throws something up on Facebook uh, if you want to kind of build on that look for her post any minute now any questions Questions whatsoever, info at IHI.org. We have a great group who help us here. The people who help make WIHI possible include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and a wonderful Northeastern co-op, Tala Algusain. That's Northeastern University, that is. And we hope you enjoy some of the music we put in at the beginning of the end of the program. So it's my privilege... A huge privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for a terrific uh, discussion and bit of learning today. Good day, everyone.